If you don't know me, my name's James. Uh, it's a great uh, privilege to open up this passage. It's a hard passage, isn't it? Hard truths for us. So let's ask God now to speak to us through it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you made the world, that you, by your Spirit, 2,000 years ago, inspired these words through Peter. And so, Father, we thank you that as you did that, as you saw all of time, you knew exactly who would be in this room tonight. And so, Father, we pray that these words, by your Spirit now, would be your words to us, that we would hear your voice, that you would challenge us, that you would rebuke us, you would correct us, you would train us, that we might live for you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. There was a young police constable uh, doing his final exam at the police training college, and he was asked this question on the, the, uh, the test. What would you do in this scenario, was the question. You're on your duty in a, a kind of leafy suburb of town, and suddenly you hear an explosion, and you run round to the next street, and you see on the sidewalk a huge hole. A, 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 um, a gas pipe has blown up, and there's a, a, a car that was blown up with it, and the guy who's there, he's fine, but he stinks of alcohol. You're just wondering what to do. And then uh, somebody pulls up in a van to help, and you think, phew. Except as the man gets out, you realize he's wanted for armed robbery. You're wondering what to do, and suddenly a man comes screaming from a building. He, he shouts, my wife, she's gone into labor. The, the explosion's brought on uh, the, the labor. You look up, and you, you see somebody who's in the river, and it looks like the explosion's blown him into the river. And uh, you... you, you one, what do I do? And you, you look up and you see someone who looks like, as the crowd's forming, he looks like he's about to streak. And, you think, and the question on the exam says, describe in a few words what action you would take next. And the poor policeman wrote, I'd take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> Friends, as pressure heats up on us, as if you're a Christian tonight, as pressure heats on us in this society, don't you feel like that? If only I could take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. Just a, a few years ago, 10, 20 years ago, almost everyone would have said, yep, the Bible, it's a good foundation for a, a, an ethical society. Today, read portions of the Bible in public places and you're liable to be accused of a hate crime. As the pressure heats up, what do we do? If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that Peter is saying that we as Christians have a tremendous privilege. We're God's people. Last week, he told us we have a new identity. We're a royal priesthood with a new mission to declare his praises to the world. And to do that task, that means we've got to keep our uniforms on. We've got to remain on duty and be distinct from the crowd. But how do we do that? Well, that's the issue Peter is addressing. And in verses 11 to 12, he gives us some general principles. And he goes on then to apply them to specific situations. Just have a look, though, at the general principles first. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Now, just to no notice the assumption... Peter assumes we will be slandered, that people will mock us and laugh at us if we're believers in Jesus. The reality is, I think we, we're not expecting that. We're used to, we expect, don't we, to be treated kind of well. But actually, think about it. In many societies, foreigners aren't treated well. Foreigners are, yeah, they've maybe got the same rights, but often they're not enforced. 
And Peter is saying, you're foreigners. People will look down on you. You're exiles and strangers. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This sounds laughable to us. But in the early church, Christians were routinely called cannibals. Why? Because they take the Lord's Supper, as we will do tonight. And in the Lord's Supper, they say they eat the body and blood of Jesus Christ. They're cannibals. And society mocked them. Oh, you're not a cannibal, are you? You don't go to that funny church. Well, today, that seems laughable. But people routinely mock sweet old grannies who had never heard of flies, bigots, because they believe what the Bible says on certain issues. We will be slandered. But just notice what the first thing Peter says in this context. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles with a world that's hostile to you, a world that's attacking you to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. The first principle for us is to fight sin. And that's all the more surprising because it means that the great battle is not the one out there. The real enemy is not the one out there. It's the one in here. It's the one in our hearts. John Owen, a famous Puritan, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Somebody wrote a a kind of modern version based on that book and they called it The Enemy Within. It's a great title. The real enemy is in here. The desires that push us to go against God. But I wonder, friends, where are we vulnerable? It could be a desire to fit in. It could be a desire for a great career, a desire for marriage, and all of those good things, unless they push us to want them more than loyalty to God. And then they become deadly, waging war against our souls. It could be a desire for justice. People mock, mock me. They look down. I want justice now. And Peter says, be careful. Get rid of these sins. They wage war against your soul. And if we do this, we can do the second thing. Because the second principle is this. We are to do good. We are to do good. Look at verse 12. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That's the people around us. So that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. As Christians, we are to be known as people who do good, who live in an honorable way. We are to be the best of friends. We are to be the best of neighbors, the best of roommates. We are to do what is good. We are not to be the kind of people who break confidences lightly, who lie, who, who gossip behind our, our hands, but to be good. I think this means to do what is objectively good and moral, but I think he also calls us to do what is honorable in our society. Now, of course, there'll be many things that society says are honorable, that God says is sin, and, and we steer away from that. But actually, all societies, though they are tainted by sin, bear the marks of God's common grace. There is so much in our society that is good. And we are to be honorable and strive to be honorable in those ways, to be good citizens. I take it this means we're not to be odd. There's something that's inevitable about being odd if you're a Christian. You're a stranger, you're an exile, you're an oddball. But some Christians seem to take delight in being odd, don't they? I'm sure you maybe know somebody like that. I had a friend at university. Is this being recorded? 
but I won't say his name then. I had a friend at university, he was a good friend, but uh, anyway, he was a bit odd. And one of the ways he was odd is he read in, in 1 Thessalonians where it says, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. And after church, he would try and kiss, the, you know, I'm seeing, I'm going to give you a kiss. Now in church, that was pretty odd. Don't try it after, if you're unsure, do not try it after church. What was even odder is you'd be walking down the street with a bunch of classmates and you'd see him and you knew what was coming. It was odd. Don't be odd. Don't wear clothes that are odd. Don't adopt a funny accent. Be as, as much as you can. Be normal. Be honorable. Wonder if there's a sense. We need to think in our society like missionaries. Hudson Taylor was a missionary who went to China in the 19th century, middle of the 19th century. There were a whole load of missionaries who went to China at this time. But the thing that was distinct about Hudson Taylor is that he wanted to go into the inland of China. Lots of people around the, the ports, Hong Kong and that kind of place, had heard the gospel. He wanted to go in. But to do that, he thought, I need to dress like a Chinese person. So he wore Chinese clothes. He wore a Chinese hairstyle. Now, the other Western missionaries thought that that was completely bizarre. That's distasteful. That's not befitting a European, is what they said. But to the Chinese, it was honorable. I'll do whatever it takes in that society to be honorable, to win some for Christ. That was his mentality. And I take it that's how we are to think in this world. What does it look like to live honorably in this world? What does it look like in your class tomorrow? What does it look like as, as a child? Uh, 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 what does it look like to your parents? What does it look like to your friends? Take it depending who we are. Depending the situations we're in, it will be different. But we want to do what is good. If there's some kind of thing that your class is particularly into, some, I don't know, some good work, why not get involved? If you're involved in an area and everyone leaves their trash and it's supposed to be cleaned up, why not clean it up and be honorable? Sure, people may still slander you, but the hope is they'll see your good works and glorify God. We're to fight sin, we're to do good, but we're doing it hoping for a result. That's the third thing. We're doing this hoping for a great result. And see what the result is here. Even as they slander you, that they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. We're longing as we live like this, as we don't keep our heads down, as we keep serving those who hate us, those who look down on us, we're longing that they will see our good works and so glorify God. I take it that means that they see what we're up to and they wonder why. Why is he different? Why is she behaving like that? Even when we're nasty to her, she keeps on being kind. And they wonder and they ask, why are you different? Or they ask somebody, they know, why is she different? Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding here. St. Francis of Assisi, the author, I think, of the first hymn, is supposed to have said, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. Well, that's complete baloney. For one thing, Francis of Assisi didn't say it. But it's, it's crazy, how do you, we, we like the idea, don't we? Oh, I'm not very good at speaking about Jesus, so I'll, I'll, I'll just be kind. It's a nice idea. But we saw last time, if you were with us last time, our purpose as Christians is to declare God's praise before the world. And we can't do that unless we speak. And even our fumbling, faltering attempts to do that are good and honorable. But at the same time, we need to adorn our words with good works, that people would see it that there wouldn't be a division between the way we live and the way we, we speak. And maybe there's a door closed to speak, but we carry on doing good and, and we hope and pray that one day it will come. 
and that that will be the thing that leads them to believe in Jesus and so glorify God, be glorifiers of God on the day when he returns. I found out just this week that uh, this happened with my mother-in-law. Now, this is not a mother-in-law joke, if no, no mother-in-law's here, safe at Union Church. But um, my, my mother-in-law is, grew up in, in Southern Ireland, a very anti-religion. And she called herself a Christian, but really in her heart, I, I'm just, I'm anti-God. And, um, but her, when Char- my wife Charlie was a teenager, her husband, Charlie's dad, lived away uh, working in, in the Middle East. And they lived on this cul-de-sac in Northern Ireland. And Charlie's mum said just a few weeks ago, do you know, in that cul-de-sac, the people who were really kind, there were two families, they were both Christians. Charlie's mum's not a believer. She's just begun to read the Bible. We pray that she will read it and believe and glorify God on the day he returns. But that thing, 30 years ago, is burned in her mind. Christians are good. I've seen her mock Christians many times, but somehow, despite the mockery, the slander, Christians are good. And friends, that is what we are to do in the hope and prayer that one day these people will glorify God. Well, they're the general principles. Fight sin, do good, hope for this extraordinary result. Many applies it to various relationships. First, he applies it to relationships with the authorities. And he says, refrain from evil, submit to the authorities, hoping that our actions will silence them. Have a look at verse 13. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's people. And I have to say, this is a huge area. How we are to relate to the government authorities is big and complicated. And I imagine there'll be people on, on both sides of the political spectrum. And I hope that I'll offend both of you. Because what I want us to, I want us to grapple with this. I don't want to just give us a kind of fuzzy thing. I want us to try and draw out the implications of this. And if you're offended by what I say, then in one sense I'm sorry. In another sense I'm glad because it's got us thinking. But don't go home in a half or don't only hear the stuff that you agreed with. Let's chat afterwards. Sharpen, let's sharpen each other up afterwards or in our connect groups to think how does this apply to us in 21st century Auckland. But see clearly here, the main thrust of what Peter says is we are to submit to the authorities because of the Lord. Now this is really striking, isn't it? All the more so because Peter, Peter's hearers are having their lives made difficult by the authorities. Now, the Bible teaches really clearly, it teaches here, doesn't it, that the, every human authority is set up by God for good. They're set up, as it says here, to punish evil and to reward good. But like all human institutions, they are tainted by sin. And they're clearly tainted by sin because they are persecuting, or at least uh, allowing the persecution of these Christians. And yet even to this bad authority, this corrupt authority, Peter says, submit for the sake of the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, you are God's child. That means ultimately, the government is not your master. It means that however nasty and brutal the government can be, however, however nasty and brutal the university authorities can be, you are free. Any punishment or persecution they can deal out to you ultimately has no power over you. 
because your soul is safe. Your inheritance is stored up in heaven with Jesus. But do you see what he says? Don't use that freedom as an excuse for evil. We are God's slaves, so submit joyfully to the authorities. I've heard some Christians argue. I'm sure no one would argue here like this. But the whole earth is my father's. Everything belongs to my father. And so copyright law doesn't apply to me. Every, per, every book in this planet belongs to my father, so I can copy what I like. Every film, well, that's made with his I can copy whatever film I like. But no, we are to submit to the laws of the land. When I was a child, one of my father's mantras was rules are for the obedience of uh, the obedience of fools. Sorry, rules are for the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools. Rules are for the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools. I don't know why he repeat that to me as a teenager. It did not help me at school. As I'm wandering around in school or at university, and, and there's there's just dumb rules, aren't there? Some rules are just don't walk in that place. Don't put your books there. And well, I'll just judge that. Is that right? Well, it seems a bit dumb. I'm a wise man, so I'll just ignore it. I'll walk there. It's crazy, isn't it? Oh, this homework. Yeah, it's probably not that helpful. I'm just going to... I'm a wise man. I won't do it. It's so arrogant, isn't it? I have no idea when my father said it to me. But that is lodged deeply in my soul. But it's not the Bible's way. We are not called to judge the rules and decide what we think of them. We're not to look at dumb rules and say, it's a dumb law, so it doesn't apply to me. Oh, it's a dumb speed limit, so I'll just ignore that one. That is not how we are to be. We are to submit joyfully because we are God's slaves. I wonder what rules, what laws you think, oh, they're just dumb. That you just think, well, I'm not really break, I'm just bending it. Peter says, no, joyfully submit. The Roman military had the power to do something that I imagine was very, very dumb to those who they did it to. They had the power, basically, to compel someone to go with them. So if you were a sort of sergeant or something in the army, you could say to some people around about in the empire, right, you, pick up those things and come with me. You've stopped your work, come with me. And imagine if that's you, you'd be tempted to resist. Or you'd be tempted, okay, I'll come with you, and you'd just, you know, uh, do it half-heartedly, keep dropping the things or whatever. And, and what does Jesus say about that? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Submit even to corrupt, abusive authorities, because you're God's slave. And you see, as we do that, we hope for a glorious result. For it is God's will, verse 15, that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. That may mean on earth that they run out of nasty things to say about Christians and they just give up. But I think more likely he's saying, keep doing this, that they'll see your good works and they'll be silenced. They'll stop saying foolish, irreverent things and they'll praise God because they've seen your good. I was reading an old book by Richard Vermbrandt. Does anyone know Richard Vermbrandt? A couple of people. Google Richard Vermbrandt. His books are brilliant. He was a pastor uh, in Romania after the war. And... uh, 
I'm going to get the details wrong, it's not my notes, but there was a big conference after the war in communist Romania, and all the leaders of all the main religions, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, they were all there, and um, they were on this stage basically saying that these religions were compatible with Marxism, that Marx was a prophet of Christianity. And this guy, Richard Vermeer, and his wife are in the audience. They're par- he's a pastor, and she nudges him, and he says, she says, get up there and wipe the spit off Christ's face. These are lies. Get up there and wipe it away. And he says, if I, if I do that, you'll lose your husband. She says, I'd rather, have, I'd rather have no husband than have a coward for a husband. So he gets up. as an open mic. And they see this great Richard Vermeer coming up to the microphone. And they think, wow, we've won him. And this live, not live stream, live broadcast thing over the radio, he comes up. And he says, I will not bow down to the, the communist authorities because Jesus alone is Lord. And sure enough, they drag him away and throw him into prison. And the, the book is a phenomenal way of God, how God dealt with him through torture and trials. Get hold of the book. It's, it's glorious. It's scary but glorious of how this man was so faithful to God. But he says this. When you crush a flower, it rewards you with its fragrant perfume." When you crush a flower, it rewards you with its fragrant perfume. And he was saying he'd seen so many brothers and sisters, so many Christians crushed by the communist authorities, and yet the way they responded with love and prayers for their persecutors meant people saw that fragrant perfume of Christ, and many communist mouths were silenced as they gave themselves to Jesus. Friends, this is how we are to submit. Because with the Lord's, But of course, there are limits, aren't there, to our obedience. We are to do this because of the Lord. And when the authorities, when the laws of the land cause us to to demand we do things that are sinful, that are opposed by God, we are to disobey. Peter himself, in Acts 4, Acts 5, was preaching of Jesus, and the authorities in Jerusalem told him, be quiet, stop talking about Jesus, we'll throw you in jail. And Peter said, no. We must obey God rather than man. And like Richard Vermbrandt, many obey God rather than man and suffer for it. We prayed, didn't we, for Algeria, churches closing. We obey God rather than man. One Peter is sometimes called the Daniel of the New Testament. If you know the story of Daniel, you think of those people commanded, bow down before this great statue, this great idol, and they refuse and so are thrown into the fiery furnace. Rather to obey God than man, whatever the cost. If you, someone who's never read Daniel as an adult, if you think it's a, a story for, for the Sunday school, go home and read Daniel. It's glorious. But I take it that means, although that's far from our situation in New Zealand, it's not unimaginable, unimaginable that a day is coming when certain things that we would say from the front of church, that we would say freely in our connect groups, will be illegal. That pastors will go to prison. There's a pastor earlier this year in Scandinavia who was put in prison for preaching what the Bible says on certain issues. It may well be, when some of you have children, there'll be things that are taught in school that are so out of order with what the Bible says, you'll have to pull them out and may face consequences for that. It may well be, that I say this not that many or any of you have children, but in the morning church, there'll be some people who have children 
who though they, the thought of harming children is abhorrent to them, they see the, the, the way the Bible commands discipline and they believe that they must discipline their children with smacking. And they believe what the authorities have said is, is goes against the, the, the authority God has given to parents. And so they resist. And my hunch is in, it won't be long before people end up in prison for that. And when we do, you guys who've been brought up with a spacking band for most of your lives need to stand with them. Whether you agree or not, stand with them. Because that's a matter of conscience. God has told me to do this. And I must obey God rather than man. And the devil would love to divide the church on that. There are certain things we must disobey. But it's interesting to see the overwhelming thrust of this passage is obey even these abusive, evil authorities. It's interesting to think about this in lockdown, isn't it? Because we've seen many people arguing about whether I should wear masks or whether it's okay to lock down or should I be scanning a QR code? And there is a number of people, somebody said to me at the end of church, I, I, won't, I won't do that, but I won't wear a mask even on public transport because it infringes my dignity. And I want to say, I don't think you can hold that view from this passage. Now, I don't actually have the QR code scanner on my thing, so I, I'm, it's not that I'm massively saying we must do this, but if the government mandates it, we submit. We submit. And I think the telling thing on that is the, the argument of some for not wearing masks is this is, this is the thin end of the wedge. If we, if we give in here, then the, the government will take all our dignities. Well, if you really believe that, then that's fine. But then when they start fining you, pay the fines. And when the fines build up, then go to prison. But don't say, well, the fine, well, if they don't fine me, I won't do it. Because then you don't really believe that it's sin. If you really believe that's sin, then hold that view. But hold it to the end. Don't hold it half-heartedly. Because the things, if, the, if, the, if it is sin, we must obey God, not man. But in other things... However wrong the authority, however misguided, however much we think that masks don't work, we submit. We submit. But equally, I take it that part of submission in a democracy is being involved. If you disagree with the government, get involved. Vote. Influence people to vote. When there's opportunity, take things to court. That's all part of submitting in a democracy. Pray chiefly for the government, for wise leaders. But what we must not do is use this as an excuse to let our sin rule. We must not use this as an excuse to pull down leaders and slag off leaders. We use this as an excuse to glorify God and do good because we're God's children. However demeaning, however much we feel it infringes our liberty, we submit because we're free men and women, children of God. Then Peter moves to slaves. Again, see this three-fold pattern. Resist the temptation to do wrong. Submit to masters knowing the result of suffering. In this case, will be great favor from God on us. Now, none of us are slaves or have slaves. If you do, come and see me afterwards because you shouldn't. There sadly is slavery. Sorry, I shouldn't make a joke, but there is sadly slavery in, in this country, isn't there? Hidden away, and it's wrong. But this is not the kind of slavery in, in um, Peter's day. The, the quarter of the Roman Empire, it's estimated, were slaves. The nearest equivalent of this is to workers. And you see, though, again, what Peter is saying. Submit with all reverence to 
masters. Verse, eight, house, verse 18, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Friends, if you've got a good tutor, or if you and your part-time work have got a good boss, or in your workplace have got a good boss, praise God. But if you've got an incompetent boss, or a lazy boss, or a boss who's basically just out seeking himself, he's still your boss. God has still put him there, and you are to submit to him or her. Even, do you see what it says? To a cruel boss. Why? Verse 19, for it brings favor. That is, it brings God's grace to us. If, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief for suffering, for what credit is it? When you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Friends, I take it this means we're to be good students. Not that we get the top marks, but we're not obviously lazy. I take it it means if we do a part-time job, we do it well, that they don't fire us because we never showed up. They don't threaten to kick us out of university because we never bothered to come to lectures or whatever we're supposed to do. But this says, even when you do your best, even when you try and do good, there'll be some tutor who takes it in for you because they know you're a Christian. So there'll be some boss who has it in for you because they know that you come to church. But do you see what we're to do? We're to submit. We're to cast ourselves upon God because he honors those who submit. His favor, his glory is resting on us. Now, friends, praise God. The balance of power is different in our day. We are not slaves. And I want to say really clear, if you are being abused or if you have a boss or a tutor who is cruel to you, then the right thing to do is to tell someone, please don't leave here tonight without telling someone. But even as you do that, even as you raise a complaint, you do it in a way that is respectful because you are God's slave. Knowing as you do that, God's favor rests on you. You don't want to trip them up or stab them in the back because you're God's holy people. But do you see again the motivation for this? It's a consciousness of God. So many times, uh, I take it that means that in so many places, that means we will resist what our tutors tell us, what our bosses tell us. Somebody said to me a few weeks ago after church, um, asked me, could I give them some advice? Could I discuss through an issue? And the issue was that they were asked to to make a kind of survey thing. And on the survey, one of the drop-down boxes had multiple genders. And they said, I just don't feel that's quite right. Am I doing something wrong in, in, in making this box which has things that I, I don't think are, are real things? Now, whatever you might think on that issue, I love that that person didn't just think, oh, that's just the way the creed crumbles. Just get on. That's the way the world is. We need to think about these things. After chatting, we, we, the sense was actually it was fine to do that. But I take it there will be things that you are asked to do, either in your university or in your work careers, that you cannot, in God, good conscience, do and still hold Christ as your Lord. But friends, where are those things? Do you know? Do you know in the career you're going into? Do you know what they are in student life, in uni life? We need to find them out. Let's discuss that. Both, let's know how far we can go so we can joyfully submit But let's know where the red lines are so that we can uh, joyfully resist when we need to. I don't know if anyone's ever gone ice climbing. You know the kind of thing you do? uh, Well, I say the thing you do as if I've done it. I've never done it, but I'd love to go up the mountain, you know, with all the kind of gear on and with the ice axe and that kind of thing. And I take it as you do that, if you go up, 
you, you have that ice axe so that if you slip and lose your footing, you can whack in the axe. Now imagine you're up on some great mountain in the middle of winter and you slip as you climb up. It doesn't really matter whether you put the axe in up here or up down there or right down here. The crucial thing is to get the axe in somewhere so you don't fall off to your death. And friends, it's the same here. Where are the red lines for you in your profession? Let's ask each other. Let's know so that when this day comes, we can do as much good as we can and resist the evil that we need to do. But friends, I don't know about you. As I come to it, I feel exhausted. It's hard living in this society. Frankly, I want to take off my uniform and mingle with the crowd. So how do we keep doing this? I think the answer comes in verse 21. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Look at verse 21. For, this, for you are called to this. Because Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This suffering is part of the Christian life. This is part of our calling to follow Jesus. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. And this is part of our, co- our cross. Maybe that some, frankly, dread going home to their flats. Because you know that you're going to get it in the neck again from that awkward flatmate. Oh, you went to church again, did you? Taking your brain out again, have you? Maybe some tomorrow just don't want to go to lectures because you know you're going to get laughed at. And maybe you've begun to wonder, is it because I've done something wrong? And this is no. If you're suffering because you're following Jesus, it's because you were called to this, because this is part of the Christian life. It's because you follow Jesus. And you see, Jesus models the pattern of this. He models that suffering is normal. But more than that, he models how to suffer, doesn't he? Peter uses Isaiah 53. It's a great great song of a servant who comes to suffer to rescue God's people. The servant song or the slave song. And Peter is saying, this is what Jesus did. And, And look and see what he did, verse 22, as he suffered. He did not commit sin. And no deceit was found in his mouth when he was insulted. He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore his sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness. And friends, just think how Jesus did this. It was Jesus, as he was arrested in the garden, he submitted to the authorities. Peter himself pulled out his sword, didn't he? And Peter said, put it away. And Jesus said, put it away. As Jesus was dragged before the Sanhedrin and mocked and accused of lying, he did not respond with lies. As he was ridiculed by the Roman guards and spat on and beaten and mocked, as they shoved that crown of thorns on his head, he did not threaten. He so easily could have done. Don't you know I'm the judge? He so easily could have called down legions of angels and ended that shame there but he entrusted himself to his father. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The precious flower was crushed and gave up its fragrance. Friends, just think how glorious this is for a moment. The perfect, holy son of God, the one who always spent all of eternity in glory, came to the earth to do this for you and for me. Isn't this extraordinary? He who never tasted, who never needed to taste death or pain, 
willingly did this, willingly suffered at the hands of his creatures for us. And friends, this is our model. As we're tempted to lash out and respond in tit for tat, think of Jesus. As we're tempted to vent, to, to kick off, let's restrain our tongues and commit our enemies to our Father. But you see, Jesus isn't just a pattern. He's a glorious pattern, but he's not just a pattern. He gives us the power to do this. He himself bore his sins, our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And friends, you see, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. Our sin is washed away. We are healed. Though it is hard, we can live for Jesus in this world that hates us. By his power, he gives us the power to live for righteousness. If you're not a Christian, it's so great you're here. Do you see, though, why Christians will die? They'll do anything for Jesus. Why they'll suffer. Why people's mocking ultimately won't get them to back down. Because Jesus did all this for us. By his wounds, our sin is washed away. There is no other way, the Bible says, to be, right, to be reconciled to God. It's only Jesus. And Jesus, who did all this for us, we will not leave him. But friends, you see, the invitation tonight is to come to Jesus, that he would heal your sin, that he would turn you from an enemy of Christianity, one who mocks and scoffs into one of Jesus' children. Whatever you've done, however anti-Christianity you are, he offers to heal you and restore you and give you the power to suffer. Because if you give yourself to Jesus, you will suffer. Jesus is a pattern. Jesus gives us the power. But finally, Jesus is our protection. In Isaiah 53, all humans are pictured like sheep, like stupid sheep who've gone away. Each one of us turned to his own way. But now we've returned. We ransom, we're restored, we're healed because, verse 25, we've returned to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. And friends, do you see what this means? It means as we go out tonight, as we go off tomorrow, the times when we feel alone as if the whole world is against us, our shepherd is with us. Though we may feel like we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus is overseeing us. He is shepherding us. So this week, let's go out. Let's go out with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's commit to do good. However much is thrown at us, let's commit to resist evil and do good and long and pray that those around us would see Jesus' glory and bow the knee before him and so on the day of judgment glorify him. Let's pray that we would be, have the power from Jesus to do that. Let's pray together. There's a moment before we pray to think, where are the areas where we need to recommit to doing good? Where are the areas where we need to commit to resist evil? Where we need to ask Jesus, give me your power to keep doing good. Maybe some need to say, Jesus, I, I want you to be my shepherd. I want you to heal me and restore me. Let's pray and respond to him. Father, thank you so much that you have given us the immense privilege of walking as your children, 
citizens of heaven, foreigners on this earth. And so, Father, we long, help us to work out our calling, to live for you and declare your praise in this world. Help us in whatever areas come to our mind to keep doing good, to resist evil, to live for you. And we pray, dear Father, give us the joy of seeing those around us, classmates, colleagues, friends, family, come to know Jesus and so glorify you. Authorities over us be silenced as their ignorance is exposed and they turn and their mouths are filled with praise. We long that you would do that in this place, that you would help us to live in a way that causes people to see your glory, that opens the door for the gospel to be spoken. And we ask it all, not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake, that he may receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.